liquid market enables individuals or groups to quickly buy and sell assets. Decentralized platforms can struggle to execute trades when their platform does not have much liquidity for a specific token. Newer tokens or tokens with limited supply are most often the least liquid because there might be an imbalance of buyers and sellers. You can't sell token A for price X without a consenting buyer on the other end. The company Uniswap is a decentralized protocol for creating liquidity and trading ERC-20 tokens on Ethereum. Uniswap encourages users to be liquidity providers, whereby they pool their assets into funds that enable people to complete trades without an opposite party. Instead, they swap against the liquidity pool created by the liquidity providers. Every swap incurs a small fee, which is distributed proportionally to liquidity providers when they decide to pull their funds. Uniswap prices coins based on the simple formula x times y equals k. In this episode, we talk with Noah Zinsmeister, engineering lead at Uniswap. Noah also maintains Web3 React, a framework for building blockchain applications. We discuss cryptocurrency liquidity, the Ethereum blockchain, and how Uniswap is building a community of liquidity providers and traders. Noah, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Jeff. You work on Uniswap. Uniswap is a liquidity pool. Can you explain what that means? Definitely. So it uses some traditional financial words, but in a very untraditional setting. So what a liquidity pool is, is a smart contract, which is a piece of code that lives on the Ethereum blockchain. And this smart contract dictates how people can interact with it and the rules that people have to abide by if they want to participate with it. And so a liquidity pool allows users to come to the table with some assets, two assets in our case, um, asset A and asset B, and they can give those assets to the smart contract. The smart contract then can make them available for trading. So other users can come to the smart contract and offer one asset in exchange for another at some price. And uh, again, the pool dictates both how the user, you know, the price the, the user is getting when they're trading asset A for asset B, as well as the rewards and the you know the potential upside for the liquidity provider, and so there you know there's there's some fees that are being collected in the assets that are being traded, and so those those fees accrue as additional tokens that the liquidity provider can then withdraw at a later date. And so ultimately, a liquidity pool is a smart contract where um, the rules of the system are dictated not by an individual or an institution, but rather just by code, and then participants are free to interact with it in a way um, that they see fit. How is this different from a market maker or an exchange? That's a great question. Well, it's somewhat of a form of, of both. So in a traditional exchange, there's a platform typically, right? Like, uh, you know, your Gemini's, your Coinbase's. And that platform offers tools for market makers and for liquidity providers. And so those tools are typically in the form of APIs, uh, order books, you know, things like that. And as a market maker, you typically have some strategy that you're executing against. It's usually pretty algorithmic these days. You know, there are sort of manual ways to market make and to trade. But for the most part, you're sort of operating in this highly professionalized environment on a particular platform. So in Uniswap's case, it's a bit different. So again, there are these traditional participants. So there are market makers, there are liquidity providers, there are arbitrageurs as well, which play a slightly more prominent part in Uniswap than in a, in a traditional setting. And so let's just go through each of those in particular. So um, a liquidity provider, as I mentioned, is someone who comes to the table with assets. And so in a traditional setting, right? Those assets are held sort of in custody by the platform. And, you know, you can put typically um, orders on, on either side of the order book. And, you know, those are those are executed pro rata uh, as, as the price changes. And Uniswap, you're required to upfront sort of give your funds over as a sort of act of custodianship to this smart contract. And once your funds have been 
uh, given to the smart contract, they're available for trading. And you no longer actually have control over those funds until you choose to withdraw. So at the moment you deposit your funds, users are able to trade against them immediately. And at any point, you can exit the pool and, and, and you know, withdraw your funds. And so there's a, there's a risk profile as a liquidity provider, right? You're, you're, you're making a bet that um, there's going to be some amount of trading volume where some small portion of that trading volume is accrued as fees, which are then, you know, uh, collected by you. But there's also this risk, right, where if, if the price changes quite dramatically, then you're potentially exposed to some, some loss, right? Because you've essentially been market making all the way uh, as this price changes from where it is now to where it's going. And you've been sort of selling on the way up is the easiest way to put it. And so that's a risk. But then there's this upside, right, that you're, that you're getting with fees. And so, again, it's analogous to a liquidity provider on, a, on, a, on an order book because you stand to earn fees. And, and again, you, you do stand uh, exposure to price movements if you're unable to sort of pull your order quickly before a price changes. But there are, again, these, these differences, right? Because you're not actively really market making, you're, you're, you're actually passively market making, which is what we, we sort of, it's, it's a term we use at Uniswap. And so it's a very interesting, you know, way of participating in this marketplace that again, is, is typically highly professionalized, but now is sort of becoming a bit more open with, you know, algorithmic market makers like Uniswap. And then just to close this thought out, um, from a trader's perspective, it's it's actually quite similar. The, the analogies between a centralized exchange and something like Uniswap are, are much more similar. You know, you're getting quoted um, a rate for a given amount of input that you're that you're looking to trade for for an output amount, and that process on a central centralized exchange is just typically eating through orders in an order book. And Uniswap, it's sort of continuously traversing a path that's determined by the market making function. And so in Uniswap's case, that function is quite simple. It's X times Y equals K. And so this function is what dictates the rates at which you're able to trade assets for one another. And we can go into that probably more um, at a later date. And there are other, you know, sort of options, other competitors to Uniswap and, and different market makers in this space use different ways of calculating prices. But ultimately, it's, it's, it's determined by an algorithm by, by a continuous function, as opposed to the sum of orders that are manually placed by individuals. Is there anything like a liquidity pool in traditional finance? It's, it's more rare than you might think. And there is some novelty to, to what we're doing here. Now, there, there are, you know, sort of pro rata ways that you can earn fees, you know, you can participate in, you know, in a market making firm, and you can be sort of an LP for, for, for a market maker. And there is a similar risk profile that you're taking on here, right? Like, ultimately, it's about uh, being smart about being a liquidity, you know, being in the markets when when a lot of trades are coming through when a lot of fees are being generated, um, when there's a lot of chop and volatility in the markets. Um, and it's about being careful that you're not again, exposed to these big price movements and making sure that you're doing your inventory management correctly. But ultimately, I think, and again, I'm not actually the expert on traditional finance here. So I won't sort of stray too, too, too far from my domain. But I, I will say that for the average, you know, participant potentially in these markets, you know, market making is is really not your domain. You're, you're going to get eaten um, if you're a small fish, and you know the, the market is just highly professionalized and it, it's become ex- it's it's become you know very uh, very efficient in many ways, which is which is good, right? Like you you want efficient market making across um, different exchanges. You want there to be sort of few arbitrage opportunities. So you're just not going to be able to keep up really as an individual. Um, if you're trying to get into the market making game, you need sort of an institution that's backing you or, or a highly sophisticated strategy that's backed by algorithms and data and servers and things like that. But in Uniswap, you can sort of be a, a participant in this market making strategy that the whole pool is sharing, right? And so you can, you can participate in this upside um, as well as take on the, the risk profile 
and it's it's you know you can do that in a way that's sort of has higher has less overhead and and sort of a you know there's less logistical as well as mental overhead. Um, you don't really have to keep track of the way that the marketing is going day to day. You're just sort of making this long term sort of high level bet on what the prices of these assets are going to do in the future and um, and how many fees are going to be are going to be generated. So you know I'm, that's the sort of extent to which it's it's a bit of a novel experiment experiment really relative to a traditional exchange. Tell me a little bit about how Uniswap gets used in modern crypto markets. Sure thing. So something that people talk about a lot in crypto and in Ethereum in particular is money Legos. So the idea behind this is that you know in the past financial institutions have been pretty pretty siloed. So innovation comes sort of in 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 spets and bursts, and you know it's typically concentrated at the at the firm level. Like you know a new product offering comes out, a, you know a new credit card, you know Stripe starts offering you know aggregation and 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 payment processing and things like that, and you know, it's, it's often quite, quite hard to interoperate between these systems. And that's, that's due to a, a variety of factors. There's regulations at play here that, that prevent, you know, the mixing of products across different industries, across different, um, you know, risk profiles, across different investor classes, things like that. And additionally, there's just ultimately, you know, we're just very sort of wedded to the structure of financial offerings at a, at a, again, at a firm level, at a company level. Um, and of course, there are, you know, the Fed has a lot of programs that sort of are meant to uh, level rates and level market making opportunities across a sort of an array of financial you know institutions, and those types of behaviors exist. But again, there's a lot of silos that are still around, and that creates inefficiencies, and it makes it hard to interoperate and offer truly innovative products across you know the, the spectrum of, of of financial opportunities, and so. What Ethereum offers a sort of centralized, well, of course it's decentralized, right? But maybe I should just say a shared uh, settlement layer and logic layer for all of these financial applications to interoperate with each other. And so you you don't have these silos anymore. And so there's of course a lot of trade-offs that come with this, right? Like if you imagine, you know, this shared global ledger where people are sort of competing to to get their transaction, and you know, you can imagine that that comes with a lot of overhead. There's some costs associated with participating in this network. But the upside is that again, you get this shared layer where any application that's offering a financial product can sort of immediately out of the box interoperate with any other application. And so let's be concrete about what that means. So Uniswap, as as I've mentioned, is a way just to swap assets, swap A A to B. Um, And so this is a quite simple, primitive, really building block. And it's not, of course, there are uses that don't require other, you know, moving parts, right? You might just want to buy and sell an asset, you know, to hold or as as part of an investment strategy. And that's totally fine. And that happens. But there are sort of mechanisms which require the exchange of assets as part of a larger system. And so Uniswap is really meant to be one of those building blocks. And so it, it lets you swap assets for one another in a trustless way without needing to go to an intermediary. And it can be done as part of, again, as part of a larger system. And so when liquidations need to happen, for example, you can sell uh, assets, you know, for their quote unquote fair market value on Uniswap at any point. And this can be done um, sort of on demand at any point by any protocol that that needs to have like a liquid liquidation layer, for example, in their system. And so, yeah, we're, we're really excited about Uniswap, not as necessarily a platform for trading, which it is. And, you know, that that is a great use case, but we're excited for it to be, again, a building block, a layer that can be, you know, plugged in at any level from, you know, within anyone else's stack. 
as long as they're building on on Ethereum. And so that's that's what's exciting to to us. Ethereum has a concept of atomic and non-atomic actions. Can you explain this a little bit more and, and describe how it has relevance to Uniswap? Absolutely. So this is an important concept for understanding the setting that, that Uniswap exists in. So let's take an example, and then we can go through some, some of the implications of this example. So one thing that Ethereum offers that the traditional financial sector really can't because of the technology involved is something called a flash loan or a flash swap. And so what this is, is it's basically an optimistic loan of assets to an individual with the expectation of repayment after the fact, right? And so in the real world, this is pretty risky, right? You can't really give someone money and say, you know, I'm, I'm just trusting that you'll pay me back later because you don't know if they will, right? And this, this, this is not just, you know, this isn't just a matter of personal finance. This problem exists in the, in the traditional sector as well. You know, asset-backed loans are, are very real. And so, you know, you need to, and, you know, unsecured loans are risky. And, you know, there's a whole variety of products and, um, and technology solutions that have evolved to sort of address different aspects of this unsecured loan uh, technology, right? But in crypto, there is a twist here, and we can actually ensure that payment happens after the initial loan of assets. And so let, let's walk through a very quick example. So Uniswap actually offers this somewhat as a feature. So let's say that we're operating in the Ethereum DAI pool on Uniswap, meaning there's a pool which has a bunch of Ethereum and a bunch of DAI in it. DAI is a token that's pegged to the price of the US dollar. Ethereum is you know, the, the base unit of, of, of Ethereum itself. And so these, these two assets are available for trading. What you can do is you can go to this pool, and again, by the rules that are dictated by the smart contract itself, you can ask it for some ETH, and you say, hey, I want 10 ETH. Can you loan me this? And the contract will say, sure, and it'll give you 10 ETH. With that 10 ETH, you can then do whatever you'd like, literally whatever you'd like on Ethereum within the space of what's what's called an atomic transaction. And then at the very end of this transaction, what the contract does is it simply demands that you either A, repay the ETH, or B, give back an equivalent amount of DAI. And so remember, this is an ETH DAI pool. So if you repay your ETH, you know, the, the pool is happy. You've, you've, you've sort of returned what, you, what you've owed it. And equivalently, you can also pay back the equivalent value of DAI. So if you borrowed 10 ETH and, you know, ETH is trading to 1,000 DAI, you have to send back 10,000 DAI or, some, or you know, 100 DAI or whatever the, whatever the conversions are. And so what this lets you do is essentially act on arbitrage opportunities without having to put up an initial capital allocation. So in a typical arbitrage scenario, right, you need to have capital across, let's say, two competing exchanges. And to take advantage of price opportunities, you um, you trade in one direction on the, the one and then the other direction on the other. And to do that, you sort of need accounts and capital locked up in both of these systems. But in Uniswap, if there's an arbitrage opportunity external to Uniswap on, on this ETH DAI pair, right, the, the price on Uniswap is different than the price externally, you don't actually need the capital to take advantage of this. Because what you can do is you can ask the Uniswap pair for an optimistic you know, transfer, essentially, a flash loan, so that it'll give you the money up front. You can use that money to execute this arbitrage opportunity, earn your profit, you know, return as much as you need to the pool and then pocket the rest, right? And so this is a really powerful tool to make markets more efficient. And it's really, it's impossible to think about in a traditional financial setting, because again, the technology stack involved here is just not replicable in a traditional setting. And so that's a really interesting application and benefit of, of this atomicity behavior. And then just to back up maybe a little bit after having dive, dived into that example, um, the basic idea behind an atomic transaction is that you can execute something on Ethereum 
and basically roll back those changes if something doesn't go the way you wanted it to, right? So let's, again, to take a traditional analog, like let's say you wire some money to um, you know, your broker, you're trying to buy a house or you're trying to get an apartment and you, you ended up putting the wrong wire amount. Well, that's, that's pretty bad because that's sort of an irreversible transaction in a lot of ways. And so on Ethereum, what can happen is maybe you don't make a mistake, but let's say there's some price movement ahead of your trade that you were not anticipating and you know, let's say it would be adverse to your trading, you sort of don't want to execute that trade. What you can do is essentially roll back that transaction and act as if you know the state changes that occurred as the result of your behaviors never happened. And so um, in a flash loan scenario, you can ask for the money up front, you can try to execute your arbitrage opportunity. But if you know if the ARB doesn't exist anymore um, and it's not possible to profitably trade, you can basically just cancel that operation the flash loan, you know, won't be able to be repaid, but you can just roll back the state. And so it's as if it never happened. And so there is a small fee involved with this, of course, you know, you can't sort of get this for free, but it is this really unique, interesting behavior that you can get on, on Ethereum. And so, you know, when you're thinking about an atomic transaction, essentially, it's just a bundle of state changes that either all go through or none go through. So it's an all or nothing situation. And that can, that can drive a lot of really powerful behavior. I'd like to know a little bit more about the process of building Uniswap. Can you tell me about the engineering process that went into to building the first version of Uniswap, like the architecture and the uh, planning and the implementation, how you tested it even? Absolutely. So this is a great question. And I think I'll, I'll probably frame this in the context of uh, V3. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with Uniswap, we're on our third iteration. Uniswap V1 was the sort of initial MVP launch product. Uniswap V2 was released about a year ago now in, in 2020. And it was uh, a sort of evolution of the original product. And then Uniswap V3 is our most ambitious project to date. Uh, it's currently in uh, it's in the latest stages of development. We're basically finalized the code and we're, we're waiting to deploy it pretty soon now. So Ethereum is um, a pretty interesting uh, setting to do software engineering in. The, the sort of base environment that we're living in is called the Ethereum Virtual Machine, the EVM. And so it's a tailor-made execution environment for code that is suited in particular to blockchain use cases. So there's a variety of you know, trade-offs and security concerns and data storage models that have to be sort of tailored to blockchain to blockchains in particular. And so the EVM has some, some funky rough edges, but it is this environment where all the code that is on Ethereum sort of lives within and operates within. And so we're developing code for the EVM. And so we do that in a language called Solidity, which is sort of a mashup of Java, JavaScript, C++, and you know it's a bit of a young language, let's just say. So it doesn't have a lot of the fully fledged features that you know some of these more traditional languages have. And so there are often a lot of rough edges that you run into, and you, you do have to be quite, quite careful with, with the patterns that you're using. So to dive into a little bit of the, the sort of tech stack of, of E3, we're basically writing these contracts in Solidity. And they are responsible for custodying a lot of assets, right? And so we have to be pretty sure that they that they work. And so we we essentially have two levels at which we at which we run tests. We have uh, unit tests, which are just very typical sort of you know tests of particular behaviors. You know, we want to make sure that the math operations are are being rounded correctly. We want to make sure that the recipients are actually getting their assets. We want to make sure that fee collection is is pro rata across all existing liquidity providers, things like that. So we have a very sort of extensive suite of unit tests that 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 
test these specific behaviors. And then we have what are called fuzz tests. And so fuzz testing, for those who don't know, and you can use this uh, in traditional settings as well, not just blockchain, it basically uh, searches a vast array of possible inputs and uh, tests uh, some some conditions on an output. So you, you have a function that takes an input and it transforms it and it produces an output. Um, in Ethereum, the potential, the range of potential inputs um, is it can often be quite, quite large. And you actually have to be prepared and capable of accepting all possible inputs because uh, you know the system is adversarial, right? Like an, an attacker is just as free to use your software as anyone else, right? And so you know you can't rely on like an API to sort of prevent you know DDoSers or, or bad actors. You really have to be again fully prepared to accept the worst possible case of this function being called, right? And so that actually is, is a that is a pretty unique property. And so fuzz testing really helps us with this because what it does is it simulates. Uh, you know, a given transaction call against, again, as I mentioned, a, a wide, wide range of possible inputs. And it basically checks some conditions on the output and it makes sure that your, you know, this function is operating as intended. And so we also have an extensive an amount of fuzz testing. And that has actually been really, really helpful because often, you know, the, the code that you write seems intuitively correct to you, but often you're missing something very crucial. And so we've found that there have been numerous cases where this fuzz testing has exposed a vulnerability or a flaw in our reasoning that um, that we just wouldn't have caught without without these automated tooling layers. So that, that has been very, very helpful. And then I guess there is a third point to mention. Beyond unit tests and fuzz tests, we have, um, there are some formal verification tools um, that we have been using, um, that we've used a lot in V2 and that we're also using in V3. And what those are, are sort of more high powered mathematical models that let you prove sort of beyond a shadow of a doubt properties about your code. And so this is reserved for the the most low level functions, right? Because it's it's extremely hard to prove properties about complex systems, but you can break those systems down into their constituent parts and prove small, you know, scoped properties about the parts themselves. And so there there's some work we've been doing around formal verification, um, which is probably slightly out of scope. Maybe we can dig into it a little bit, but you know, that's just something to note. And we have been running running those those formal verifiers against the V3 code. And so that's the general testing process. And then ultimately, you know, what we have is just a, a piece of bytecode that we're going to be deploying to the blockchain. And then once it's live on chain, again, it, it just becomes its own sort of self-sovereign piece of code. And, and the actions that it can take are fully dictated by the parameters that we wrote into the system. And so it's a very high stakes developing environment, right? Like you really need to make sure um, that you're that you've sort of done every, you know, you crossed all your T's and dotted all your I's because there's no going back once it's deployed um, and once capital has has been um, allocated to it. And so it's a very high stakes, but also very exciting and very interesting domain. I'd like to go through some of the terminology around Uniswap. First, let's, let's simply define what is a swap. Right. So a, a swap is just very simply an exchange of one asset for another. And so, you know, if you imagine someone with apples and oranges, and they have 10 of each, right? You may become with with two apples and the apple and orange dealer says, ah, two apples, that's about that's about equivalent to to one orange, right? Because they're not going to give you two, you know, because that they need to take a little fee, right? So they'll, they'll give you one orange for two apples. And now they have 12 apples and nine oranges. And now someone comes with two apples. You know, that's no longer worth a full orange potentially, right? Because the, the ratio of assets in the pool is, is now unbalanced. There's more apples than oranges, so they're less valuable. So a swap is essentially just, you know, exchange of one asset for another at a, at a market price that's determined by the relative ratio of assets in a pool. 
And could you also define what a pool is? Of course, yes. So the pool, as, as I've alluded to, is this smart contract that is essentially the custodian of the apples and the oranges in our case, right? It's the permissionless, sort of ownerless piece of code, which owns the assets for as long as, you know, the underlying liquidity providers have entrusted them, uh, the assets to it. And so, you know, the pool is what ultimately decides how many apples you get for a given amount of oranges at, at any point. And because of the atomicity feature that we discussed earlier, there's always a market price for apples and oranges, right? There's never any ambiguity. There's never any like pending orders. There's never any settlement that needs to be waited upon at any moment because um, a transaction either goes through or it doesn't, there's a ratio of apples and oranges in a pool. And so you're always able to get a quote for an, for an output amount against any input amount. What is an Oracle? So an Oracle is a way of accessing data on a blockchain that cannot be sort of immediately gathered from the surrounding environment. So, you know, blockchains are somewhat of a sequestered system. This EVM that I was discussing earlier, the virtual machine, which smart contracts all live in, really has no access to the outside world. It, it can't fetch API results. It doesn't know, you know, the weather. Uh, it doesn't even know the price of the dollar or Bitcoin or ETH. And that's basically just part of the security properties of this chain. And so that presents pretty unique challenges. So when you're building financial products, it's often quite necessary to be able to know the dollar price of an asset, right? You need to be able to compute collateralization ratios. You need to be able to you know, track the dollar value of portfolios, right? And so to do this in Ethereum requires an oracle. And this oracle is some party that is telling you how um, much an asset is worth, or it's telling you the weather last week in Spain. You know, it's, it's, it's just a piece of, you know, it's a reporter of data that has various security properties, right? And so the security of Oracle data can not be guaranteed by the chain itself, by the base layer. The security rather needs to be insured via some other means. So there, there are a variety of ways to get real world, quote unquote, real world data into a, a blockchain setting. And all of those various ways encompass the different methods of you know, being an Oracle or, or retrieving Oracle data on Ethereum. And so we can go into those, you know, to any level, at any level of detail you'd like, but that's the general setting that we're, that we're discussing here. So why are Oracles so relevant to Uniswap? Right. So Uniswap is actually in a pretty unique place with respect to Oracles. We actually don't need an Oracle to offer, you know, the smart contracts that we put out don't need an Oracle in order to offer you know, swaps of, of one asset for another. And that's a pretty unique setting. Most, I would say most DeFi, decentralized finance applications on Ethereum do in fact need an Oracle for the proper functioning of their systems, but Uniswap does not. So let's go into a little bit why, and then maybe sort of what, what opportunities this presents to other people that are integrating with Uniswap. So why doesn't Uniswap need an Oracle? Well, as I mentioned, the pools in question are always able to offer one asset for another. And so whenever the price of you know, ETH and DAI in the ETH DAI pool on Uniswap diverges from the ETH DAI price elsewhere, right, on centralized exchanges on Coinbase, for example, that represents an arbitrage opportunity. And so what that means is that there's a profit to be made by trading, again, in one direction on Uniswap, in another on a centralized exchange. And so that's going to be exploited, right? Someone's going to take advantage of that arbitrage opportunity. And so ultimately, the price on Uniswap tracks the real world price, 
whenever there's enough profit to be made from equilibrating the, that, that price. And so while this might seem sort of extractive, it's actually the real core reason why Uniswap works at all and why the prices that are offered by Uniswap are even close to you know, something that people would take advantage of. And so this behavior actually lets us be fully agnostic of any kind of Oracle situation because we don't need to know what the price is off chain. We're actually just relying on arbitragers you know, taking a profit from the system whenever there's a deviation. And so this is a pretty powerful system for us. And it, you know, it simplifies a lot of the security assumptions around Uniswap because money on the table is a very powerful motivator. And so you can make pretty strong assumptions about, you know, the properties of the price on Uniswap based on the amount of money that's, you know, at stake to be made if, uh, if price differences exist. And so then let's move on to what this means for the rest of the ecosystem, right? Because the price on Uniswap, as we just discussed, tends toward the true off-chain price at any given moment, you can actually use the Uniswap price as an Oracle input to other systems, right? So like the ETH DAI price in the ETH DAI Uniswap pool, and remember I said that DAI was pegged to a dollar, right? So the ETH DAI price is really the dollar price of Ethereum. And that you can access natively from any other application on Ethereum without needing to trust some off-chain source of what the dollar price of Ethereum is at any given moment. And so that is really powerful because it basically brings this, what used to be a problem of fetching data external to Ethereum into the Ethereum world itself. And it becomes a matter of fetching data just from Uniswap instead. And that is a, is a you know, method of getting data that's, that can be much more scoped and involves far fewer trust assumptions. And so the only real concern here now is not about the security of who's reporting this data to you, right? Because you don't need to trust anyone anymore. It's the code itself is offering this data to you, but you do need to be worried about um, manipulation and attackers. And so, you know, because Ethereum is an adversarial system, you know, the price you can you can choose to you know manipulate the price uh, of a pool, and it'll cost you a lot of money, but no one's going to stop you, right? And so, if if an external system is using the Uniswap price as an oracle for what the dollar price of Ethereum is, and then they're using that as an input to their system, there's you know there's a possibility that more value is locked in this system than is available for arbitrage profits on Uniswap. And so it might be more profitable to a, sort of quote unquote attack the price on Uniswap by pushing it far from the true value. And of course they'd be burning money to do so, right? Because you know the price will be constantly getting arbitraged back to its true price and you'll have to you know, you'll have to again trade it up to its manipulated value. So you'll be burning money, but the potential payoff might be quite high because this other system might be now using an incorrect price as part of its, you know, calculations. And there's maybe some greater profit opportunity to be made, to be made there. And so that's just a bit of a window into this really wacky um, world of decentralized finance that involves, again, a, a really different trade-off space than than traditional applications, right? Like, um, there's there's all these trust assumptions. There's uh, manipulation resistance that you have to think about, and there are of course ways to address this on Uniswap. But it, it's a really interesting setting, and you know this Oracle problem is is one of the biggest that's involved in de building decentralized applications. So to the extent that Uniswap can inform that you know that Oracle process for other applications, we think it's it's a pretty valuable tool. So to go inside the mechanism of Uniswap smart contracts, each contract manages a pool of two ERC-20 tokens. 
and the balance of these tokens is maintained by a constant product formula, which is X times Y equals K. And uh, people who have looked at Uniswap may have seen that formula. They may not know exactly what it means. Can you explain what that formula means, the X times Y equals K, and, and why that's relevant? Definitely. So this is the constant product formula exactly that that I mentioned earlier in the um, in the podcast, and you you basically you nailed it. That's that's you know the, the root of Uniswap is really x times y equals k. And so what that means is the the x represents uh, one asset, the y represents another. So in our apples and oranges example, where you know the, the marketplace has ten apples and ten oranges uh, in in a pool, x is ten, y is ten, and k is this sort of unitless constant which represents the scale of this pool. And so in, in our case, it's X times Y equals K. So 10 times 10 equals hundred. So K is hundred. And K isn't really meant to be, it's not, there's no real world analogy. It's, it's just a sort of, it's, it's like a chit, like a little token, right? That represents, you know, the, the, the relative magnitude of the pool, irrespective of uh, the amount of underlying assets in the pool. And so in our example, someone comes with, with two apples and they say, Hey, can I trade this for an orange? And the, the pool says, sure. And the reason that's okay is because let's imagine the new X and the new Y now, right? New X is going to be 12 because someone gave two apples and the new Y is going to be nine. So we have now, instead of 10 and 10, we have 12 and nine. And so what's 10 times 10, hundred, what's 12 times nine? Well, it's 108, right? And so K has actually gone up in this trade. And if we imagine instead of, you know, two to one, let's say we were doing two to two. So someone came with two apples. And the marketplace instead had given them two oranges. Well, what would the balances of the pool be after that trade? Well, it would be 12 and 8. And 12 times 8 is, is 96, which is actually less than our original K of 100. And so what that means is that if, if the pool keeps executing trades like this, ultimately, it's going to be left without any value, right? And so what, what has to happen is that this K value, which represents the sort of unitless scale of the liquidity pool, always has to be going up. Right, and so the trades that happen against a marketplace, against a, a Uniswap pool, you know, must cause this K value to increase, and so that actually is what dictates the market price at any given point. It's just making sure that you know, uh, in some generic sense, irrespective again of the of the actual amounts of the underlying assets in the pool, that the pool is sort of growing in an abstract sense. And so, of course, you know, the relative, as I mentioned, the relative amounts are always changing because you're always you're never giving both assets and getting both back. You're always giving one in exchange for the other, and then you're changing the price. But in, in sort of geometric terms, you're actually increasing the size of the pool always in Uniswap, and that's what helps it maintain its security properties. Why do you have different contracts for different currency pairs rather than one big contract? That's a great question. So for those of you who aren't familiar, Uniswap has a sort of factory pool setup. So we, we have a, a factory contract, which is responsible for creating liquidity pools for any number of assets. And so what that means is that we don't control the assets that are listed on Uniswap. Anyone who wishes to become a liquidity provider for, for a given pool can simply create a, a pool, deposit their initial assets, and then anyone is it can immediately start trading those those assets on Uniswap. And so there, there's a variety of sort of trade-offs involved here. There's some, there's some costs associated with uh, creating pools, and that cost has to be borne by, um, you know, by liquidity providers, by, by potentially by traders. And so the, the reason really why separate pools exist is because um, a shared pool has some, some risks associated with it. 
it means that if there is a bug in one of the tokens involved, you know, in any Uniswap um, pool, that could potentially bleed over and affect the tokens in in any other pool, right? Because there's this shared contract that all tokens and all logic is executed against, you know, in, in Ethereum. And so, having separate pools that are sort of partitioned and you know are only responsible for trading one asset for another, and that's it sort of it, it scopes and compartmentalizes, again, the logic and the custodianship of F assets in a way that is far easier to audit, far easier to understand and intuit as a developer. And ultimately, it's just from our perspective, a bit of a safer way to go about development. And, you know, there are some, I think, cost savings, it's fair to be said, to be had for, you know, if, if we were to say, instead of a distributed network of X times Y equals K pairs, we were to instead just have a single canonical trading contract that handled all possible um, trades between assets, it ultimately becomes far harder to do the accounting appropriately for that big shared pool. And there's this security property where you have to worry about the security of any individual token in the system potentially bleeding over and affecting the security of the entire system as opposed to only affecting pairs in which it is a constituent asset. So for each pool there are liquidity providers and those liquidity providers receive LP tokens or shares. What is the value of those shares? What are they receiving in return for those shares? That's a great question. And that really gets to the root of this, you know, what are the units of this K constant that we discussed earlier? So as I mentioned, K is this unitless number and it represents the the quote unquote size of a liquidity pool. Well, it, it turns out that you can actually formulate LP tokens as um, a sort of you know, manipulation or, or, or reformulation of, of K. And so what an LP token is, is it's, it's again, it's, it's actually unitless. So there's no unit to it, but what it does is it represents your pro rata share of assets in, in the pool. And so let's take, let's take a, a pool that has just been created uh, between DAI and ETH and the very first liquidity provider is coming along and they're giving some assets. They're gonna give, let's say one ETH and a thousand DAI they're going to be issued in exchange for that an LP token, right? And this token represents their claim on the underlying assets, right? Because remember, at any point, a liquidity provider is free to sort of remove their assets um, at will and then, and then you know, get them back. So this LP token is just an IOU, essentially, th- that can be given back to the contract in exchange for the underlying value at any point. So, right, so someone contributed their ETH and their DAI and they got this LP token in return. Now let's say someone else comes along and instead of contributing one and a thousand, they contribute 0.1 and a hundred, right? So much less. They're issued another, you know, unit of LP tokens, but rather than, you know, and let's say the first um, person got a hundred tokens, rather than getting also 100, you know, this second contributor, this second liquidity provider gets 10, right? Because they've contributed a 10th of the liquidity. And so now the total liquidity in the pool is, you know, 110 100 of which is owned by the first LP, 10 of which is owned by the second, right? And so you can basically apportion fees now pro rata to liquidity providers based on how much underlying they staked. And so if someone comes and pays, you know, they want to swap ETH for DAI and, you know, they, they, they end up paying like a 50 DAI fee, let's say, 10 over 110 of that, you know, whatever that is, uh, one over 11th of that will go to the smaller liquidity provider. And then 10 11ths, the, the lion's share of the fee goes to this initial liquidity provider who ultimately is putting more capital at risk and more capital at stake. And so what lets us do that pro rata calculation of fees to L, you know, liquidity providers, LPs, 
is this LP token. So it's basically the unit of account that lets you both redeem your stake in the pool for the amount of underlying assets you've contributed. And it lets you sort of calculate ongoing fee growth um, and ensures that you get fees, you know, sort of proportional relative to the amount that you've contributed to the pool. Tell me more about the dynamics of the shares. Like how are the amount of shares determined and how is the incentive structure maintained? So the very first liquidity provider, as I mentioned, is actually issued shares according to the square root of the product uh, of the asset values they're contributing. So, you know, in X times Y equals K, basically for a given amount of X and Y, you take the square root of K and then issue that many tokens to, to this provider. And so that, if you sort of do out the math, that's the thing that actually makes sense here and lets you lets you do this pro rata tracking that I was discussing earlier. And then at least in V2, subsequent liquidity providers would actually just be issued shares relative to the current value and the sort of total supply of LP tokens. So, so I think it's easiest to think about an example. So, you know, let's say that there's, again, one ETH and a thousand DAI in a pool, and then there's some amount of liquidity provider tokens, right? The very first liquidity provider, you know, put in this much money, and then they've, they've been issued the square root of one times a thousand tokens, right? So they, they actually have 10 LP tokens. And then some other liquidity provider comes along and what they're doing is they're they're providing a fraction of the underlying value of the pool, right? So if they provide 0.1 ETH, they're providing a 10th of the current value of the pool. If they're providing one ETH, they're, they're doubling the pool, right? They're providing 100% of the current value in the pool. And so what happens when, when you provide more of the underlying asset is that you dilute existing LP tokens by issuing new tokens, right? And so let's say that the, the new entrant is providing exactly one ETH and then a thousand die, right? So they're, they're literally doubling the amount of assets in the pool. What you can basically do is just take the existing total supply of LP tokens and, and double it, right? You can just issue another 10 tokens such that the total supply now is 20 and you know each LP has 10 in turn. And so that gets that's a pretty easy sort of scenario to run through if you're just considering people entering at this exact price. It gets a bit more complicated when fees are earned, right? Because let's say the first liquidity provider enters, they're issued their LP tokens, and then someone trades, right? That changes the relative asset ratio in the pool. Um, and now a little bit of fees have actually accrued to this first liquidity provider. And so now when a new entrant comes, it's no longer this clean calculation. But what you can actually still do is basically just calculate the proportion of underlying assets that the new LP is contributing, and then mint that same proportion of liquidity tokens, LP tokens. And it turns out that, again, if you do the math, um, that basically ensures that this pro rata fee distribution uh, works appropriately. And so in V3, there is some complexity here. We've, we've introduced some additional sort of accounting layers that, that complicate this story, but ultimately it's as simple as what I described. And there's you know just some technical bells and whistles on top to ensure that everything works out appropriately, but the math underlying it is the same. Tell me about how Uniswap fits into the future of the DeFi ecosystem and how you see it functioning as time goes on. Right. So we're very interested at Uniswap in really pushing the frontiers of simplicity um, as well as sort of scalability and generalizability. So what, what made Uniswap V1 and V2 special is that it was ultimately really simple. It was just X times Y equals K, right? And we discussed, there's no Oracle that you need to run Uniswap. Uniswap just sort of works, right? And it's incentive compatible. LPs want to join typically because they want to earn fees. Traders want this ability to sort of permissionlessly 
you know, get quoted input and output amounts without having to go through any sort of KYC rigmarole or, you know, have to worry about token listings or, or things like that. And, and ultimately, arbitragers are earning profits from this system and in exchange for keeping the prices in line with centralized alternatives. And so ultimately, that system turned out to be quite robust and has worked really well for the past couple of years. Ultimately, though, crypto is as a space evolving and it's becoming, again, a bit more professionalized. So it's no longer possible, you know, it's possible that no longer is it going to be the case that, you know, Uniswap V1 is sort of scalable and um, powerful enough to deal with all the possible DeFi applications that are being built on Ethereum. And so I think what, what we're excited about is continuing to evolve this, this core idea of what makes Uniswap Uniswap, right? X times Y equals K and expanding it in a way that remains true to our original ethos, but offers tools and becomes sort of a bit more of a powerful building block that meets people's needs and DeFi. And so that basically V3 is an attempt to do that. It's taking X times Y equals K. And I know we haven't discussed V3, but what it's doing is it's basically just bringing it to another level. And it's 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 trying to appeal a bit more to the professional side of the market, right? And to, you know, to offer a product that really could potentially be on par with the capital efficiency of centralized exchanges. And so I think that we want Uniswap to continue to evolve while remaining true to its ethos. And again, really push the boundaries of what it means to be an automated market maker on Ethereum. Because, you know, typically people thought of Uniswap as, as a very good product, but maybe only good relative to its competition, right? Like because the, the EVM and the blockchain in sort of computing environment is so constrained, there are real limits on what you can do relative to, to a centralized exchange. And so, so people said, oh, you know, Uniswap is, is great for X, Y, and Z, but ultimately it can never compete on volume. It can never compete on capital efficiency. The market making tools that are offered by these centralized exchanges are just too powerful, right? It's too fast. There's too many benefits. But I think that what Uniswap V3 is trying to prove and what we're going to continue to try to prove as a company, as an ecosystem, is basically that we can compete along almost every dimension that centralized exchanges can compete on. And so we're basically trying to be the best that we can and serve, you know, the, the sort of DeFi community broadly by like offering this Oracle support, right? By, by you know, giving people the tools to, again, run automatic liquidations over Uniswap or, um, you know, swap tokens um, sort of on demand on, on, on the spot, um, while also being a powerful enough building block and base layer that can actually compete with these centralized alternatives. And so I think that's the long-term vision. And what that means for you know, the future of our products, of our, you know, of our team is, is a bit uncertain just because the space is evolving so quickly, but we're in it for the long run. And we think that V3 is a really powerful step to, again, just like leveling up Uniswap and making it that much more powerful and capital efficient. And so I think, yeah, we're really looking forward to the future of what, you know, of what crypto and DeFi becomes. And I think that Uniswap is gonna be a big part of that. Awesome. Well, Noah, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Jeff, this has been great. Thanks for having me.